Late last summer, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas spent 16 weeks at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for young adult fiction. It was the it book of the summer, and it looked like it might continue topping the list for weeks to come. But in the last week of August, a new book knocked it off the top spot. It was called Handbook for Mortals by an unknown writer named Lanny Sarum. And for people who follow what's new in the world of children's and young adult literature, this was big news. Handbook for Mortals has the kind of plot that sounds like it could be a popular YA novel. A young woman who comes from a long line of magic practitioners runs away from her domineering and also magical mother, hooks up with a famous magic show, and gets caught up in a love triangle. But there was something else quasi-magical about the book. It seemed to appear out of thin air. In other words, the very people who pay attention to the teen book market, librarians, booksellers, publicists, they'd never heard of it. People like Lydia Sigworth. I believe children's literature is very important and very moving. So if a patron came to me, if a teen came to me and said that they had read this book about this girl who has magic and was really excited about it, I would say, if you're excited about this, I want to supply this for you. Lydia is a children's librarian in Wisconsin, and she was surprised to see a completely unknown title, Unseat the Hate You Give. Part of her job, after all, is trying to figure out what books her patrons are going to want to be reading and have them in her collection. So when she found out that the author of Handbook for Mortals was coming for an event close to her, she was doubly surprised. Authors very rarely come to Wisconsin, but the only other author event I had ever been to at that point in my area was Lemony Snicket came. I've never been quite a a crowd for that. So they decide to go, to get in the car and drive 90 minutes to see for themselves what this Lanny Serum was all about. I don't think I was expecting the crowd that Lemony Snicket had, but I, I assumed there was going to be some set-up chairs and people in the audience. And she would give her a little talk and a reading, and I was expecting the opportunity to maybe ask one or two questions through a section of the book, and that is not what happened at all. We, we got to the Barnes & Noble. There was nothing there. Well, not nothing exactly. The store is there, and so is Lanny Serum, but that's it. There's no one there, and there's just like a table with some books. And I think at that moment, I was like, I am not prepared for whatever is about to happen. We like hid behind a Wonder Woman poster for like half an hour because we were like, how do we handle this? So what was going on here? If no one was clamoring to buy her books, how had Lanny Sarum sold enough books to debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list? The answer is she probably hadn't. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And I'm Jeff O'Neill. In this episode, we'll find out what happened at that Wisconsin Barnes & Noble, explore the mystery surrounding Handbook for Mortals, and reveal how an unknown book from a self-published author showed how the New York Times bestseller list can be hacked. And how, if you wanted, you could do it too. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. Want to give audiobooks a try for your next book club pick but don't know where to start? Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for great collections to get you going. With listicles like 10 audiobooks about notable women in history and roundups such as five audiobooks on political ideologies, they provide themes to choose from along with suggested questions and discussion points for your next book club meeting. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot and bring your book club meetings to a new level. Start listening today. Okay, Rebecca, before we hear Lydia finish her story of this deserted bestseller event, we need to back up just a little. Let's do it. 
Lydia went to Lanny Sarum's event knowing that people had begun to question how she ended up number one on the New York Times list. She knew there was a mystery there, though she didn't know what it was exactly. One thing to know about the young adult book community is that it is active and engaged. People read and discuss and watch what goes on. And word had gotten out that something about Handbook for Mortals felt off. And maybe the first person to start to get the idea that something odd was afoot was young adult author Phil Stamper. When I checked in the morning, just because I generally did that before work every Thursday, I opened it up and I saw that the first spot had been taken over by someone who I had never heard of, um, which honestly happens all the time. Um, I mean, I'm not going to be egotistical and say that I, I know everyone who has a book coming out. Phil's first novel, The Gravity of Us, is coming out in 2020, and he keeps himself up to date on book news, especially about young adult. So if he didn't recognize the title, he would likely know someone who did, or recognize something having to do with the book. I found it actually more strange that nobody else knew who she was either. It wasn't just the author, it was the title, the author, and not even the publisher anyone knew about. So Phil kept digging. I didn't want to assume the worst out of people, but then people started kind of replying to my tweets saying, you know, oh, there are four Amazon reviews and they're all five stars that say the exact same thing. That's strange. The same with Goodreads. There were like no reviews anywhere. It turned out that the publisher Geek Nation Press had never published a book before. In fact, it was a pop culture website with no presence in the book publishing world at all. Phil continued to tweet about what he was finding, or I guess really what he wasn't finding. And that's when the buzz really started. I think it's just, it was uh, it was a b- bizarre situation and not really something that I was ever intending to kind of, I don't know, hang someone out to dry. Like it, it never, I never wanted it to become a very personal thing, but it was very quickly turned into that by by literal gossip sites that picked it up. Which takes us back to Lydia, who at this point is still hiding behind that Wonder Woman poster. <laughs> the poor Barnes & Noble employees kept coming up to asking me, like, maybe, can we help you? And we were like, no, no, we're good. So we were like, okay, we're going to go up. We're going to ask her. And we came up with, like, three questions. We're going to buy a book because that's the polite thing to do. And then we're going to then we're gonna bail. But, you know, that was our, our plan. And that is not what happened. <laughs> And that's not what happened, because Lydia and Mindy weren't the only ones who'd heard the rumors about Sarum. Sarum apparently had as well, and she was ready. I would say that she definitely had kind of a prepared statement. She definitely had kind of laid out the, for lack of a better word, accusations that people had laid uh, against her. And she had an answer for all of them, and in many ways kind of assumed what I was going to say and answered it. And... It went on for over half an hour. And the accusations were basically this, that Sarum had gamed the New York Times bestseller list, that she had not, in fact, sold enough books to legitimately make the list, let alone claim the number one spot. But how could this be? The New York Times bestseller list is the gold standard of book lists, and garnering number one may very well be the pinnacle achievement of an author's career. Could someone nefarious really just slip in through the cracks and steal it? Well, yes. And that's because of how the list is assembled. And maybe the first thing to know is that the New York Times does not make public how it is assembled. They don't even tell us how many copies the books on their list have sold. Not even a range. So when each list comes out, it's just a rank order of titles. And they don't even tell us where their numbers come from. Not exactly, anyway. Here's how they describe their sales data. 
Every week, thousands of diverse selling locations report their actual sales on hundreds of thousands of individual titles. The panel of reporting retailers is comprehensive and reflects sales in tens of thousands of stores of all sizes and demographics across the United States. What you might notice here is what they don't say. Not all booksellers report to the New York Times. So to come up with a ranking from incomplete data, they project from the data they have. They say it this way. Sales are statistically weighted to represent and accurately reflect all outlets proportionally nationwide. So they speak to a representative sample of booksellers and then extrapolate like political polling. But why? Don't they have actual sales figures? Basically, the big issue is that no one has access to all of the data in the time that a publishing schedule requires. This is Constance Grady, who writes for Vox.com and dove into the nuts and bolts of bestseller lists after the Handbook for Mortals rumors started swirling. A publisher will eventually know how many books they've sold and who they've sold them to and what formats they've sold them in. But they're not going to have that information the week of the sale. And bestseller lists come out pretty much in most outlets on a weekly basis. So in order for the New York Times or USA Today or Publishers Weekly to put together their lists, they basically have to make some educated guesses. Sampling can work most of the time if it is truly random. But the general sense is that the New York Times sampling isn't exactly random. What we know is that the New York Times pulls sales data from a bunch of independent bookstores. Publishers have a pretty good idea of what a number of those independent bookstores are, which is why you'll see the same stores show up on book tours a lot. That's publishers pushing authors to places where they know their book sales will translate to points on the New York Times bestseller list. And that right there is the crack in the system. If you know which independent bookstores report to the New York Times, then you can, if you do it just right, fool the New York Times into thinking you're a bestseller. After the break, the blueprint for making the New York Times bestseller list the easy way. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. As the premier publisher in the audiobook industry, Penguin Random House Audio is dedicated to producing top quality audiobooks written and read by the best in the business. Today, we're recommending The Female Persuasion, written by best-selling author Meg Wallitzer and read by Rebecca Lohman. When shy college freshman Greer meets a feminist icon, the course of her life is changed forever. Kirkus Reviews calls it the perfect feminist blockbuster for our times. It is a timely listen that will have your book club discussing everything from female friendship to ambition and power. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for more book club suggestions and other titles from Penguin Random House Audio. If your mission is to make the New York Times young adult bestseller list, here's your first question. How many books do you need to sell? You mean, how many books do you need to get the New York Times to think you sold? Right. So in a slow book sales week, like the one in which Handbook for Mortals made the list, you're pretty safe in thinking that about 5,000 sales will get the job done. You won't be in one of the top two spots, but you will show up in the top 10, making you a New York Times bestseller. And the most important thing, though, is that a bunch of those sales, or at least enough sales to trick the New York Times, come through channels that report their sales to the Times. And how do you do that exactly? Well, you call bookstores and you ask. This is what Sarum apparently did. According to reports, she and her publisher, which she also works at, so essentially she and her associates, would 
call independent bookstores and ask them to confirm that they reported sales to the New York Times. If those stores said that they did, then Lanny Saram and her associates would place an order for a certain number of books from those stores. But you can't stop with just one bookstore saying they report. You have to do a little more legwork. The New York Times has a trigger set up in their mechanism where they don't like to reward books that have had their sales padded by bulk orders. So usually they'll put a little dagger next to a book on the list that has made the bulk of its sales from bulk orders. For indie bookstores, a bulk order is 80 books. What Lenny Saram and her associates would do is place orders of 78 or 79 books so that they would just avoid missing that trigger. That is how they were able to get their sales as high as possible without raising red flags internally for the New York Times. And Lanny has basically admitted that this is just what she did. Her goal was definitely to hit the list. Like she said very plainly to me, yes, I wanted to hit the list, doesn't everybody? I mean, so that is no longer debatable. This entire thing was engineered to hit the New York Times bestseller list. This is Lila Shapiro, who interviewed Sarum for Vulture. Lila says that Sarum claims, though, that she was merely compensating for a problem with the New York Times list. She claims she did actually sell these books to real readers after buying them from bookstores, but she did so at conventions which don't report their sales to the Times. She admitted that she wasn't selling these books at bookstores. She was trying to make it appear as though the books were being sold at bookstores. Her story you know, became, well, she's really selling them at Wizard World conventions. So she is then responsible for bringing the books to Wizard World conventions. And then she wanted to make the list. So she tried to make it appear as though people were buying them. Whereas her story goes, she was actually fulfilling real orders from Wizard World customers. This is where things get a little bizarre. Wizard World is a smaller traveling version of Comic-Con, basically a pop culture event held in convention centers around the country, and the main attractions are actors from big pop culture franchises. For example, an upcoming Wizard World lineup includes Jason Momoa and Ezra Miller from the Justice League movie, Bonnie Wright, who played Ginny Weasley in the Harry Potter movies, and a couple of hobbits from The Lord of the Rings. And Sarum says that even though she was an unknown author with no publishing experience, she had an ace in the hole, because she was going to these fan cons and had a big-time celebrity friend to help her move copies. And who is this huge celebrity whose star power can get convention-goers to buy copies of a book they've never heard of by the thousands? Thomas Ian Nicholas. Thomas Ian Nicholas. Unless you are super into 90s movie culture, you probably don't recognize the name Thomas Ian Nicholas. His biggest part was in the 1993 movie The Rookie, about a kid who has an accident that miraculously gives him a major league quality fastball. And his next biggest credit was as one of the second-tier supporting cast in American Pie. And the question you are asking yourself right now is the question everyone asked. Is Thomas and Nicholas really capable of moving, you know, this many books? And the answer is almost certainly not. In the week that Handbook for Mortals hit number one, it registered about 18,000 copies sold in Nielsen BookScan, a list that competes with the New York Times, but that unlike the Times, doesn't adjust the numbers it gets. Its raw sales numbers, though, are like the Times in that there are holes in the data. Lila did math on how many copies Sarum would have had to sell at WizardCon to get to that number. It was 2,100 copies at each convention they were at. <laughs> so that's a lot. Lila found someone who tried to figure out exactly what it would mean to sell that many books at the wizard cons that Sarah and Nicholas attended. It seemed to be implying that 
they would have had to sell one book every 46 seconds at each convention she attended. Mm, that just didn't happen. I've been to BEA, like, you don't get 46 seconds. It, it can't go that fast. Right. It's especially if part of the story is that people are, like, lingering and wanting to hang out with Thomas Young Nicholas <laughs> because of his compelling aura. Lila also tracked the book scan numbers for Handbook for Mortals in the weeks after it hit number one. And the sales trends do not suggest that wherever the books did or didn't go, it was sweeping the nation. So when I looked at the time, my article, like the initial burst of, you know, 18,000 books gets smaller very quickly. A few weeks later, it's like she'd sold 10 books in a week. But the thing is, for Sarah, making number one wasn't even about selling books. She had her sights set elsewhere. As for why she wanted to do that, I mean, I think that that is also pretty clear. She wanted to get a movie made that she would star in, that Thomas Young Nicholas would produce and co-star in. And this would be a star vehicle for them to, you know, make their careers happen. Their goodwill hunting situation or something like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and you know, and I think that they had this idea that getting a best-selling book will help launch this movie, which, you know, from one perspective, I guess it's not a totally insane idea. Obviously, there are best-selling books that become movies. Sarum has said that Handbook for Mortals started out as a screenplay. But when that didn't get any traction, someone told her to make it into a book because, well, lots of movies are adapted from books. And apparently the dream scenario here is that someone who is someone in the movie business would see Handbook for Mortals atop the bestseller list and Sarum and Nicholas would get a meeting with a Hollywood mover and shaker. My impression, speaking to her and to Thomas and Nicholas, is that like they are not readers. So I think she's in Vegas. She's not surrounded by a community of book readers. She is surrounded by sort of, shall we say, like washed up 90s film stars and TV stars. Like she goes to Wizard World and she hangs out with like D-list Buffy stars and Thomas Young Nicholas. And these are not people who are immersed in reading or the New York literary scene. And I think people told her like, yeah, looks good to me. Sounds cool. They underestimated the fact that the publishing world is itself a powerful industry interested in protecting its integrity to some degree. The part, though, that makes this story about something bigger than a couple of dreamers who thought they found a shortcut is that if, as Lila thinks, Sarah and Nicholas are naive about the publishing world, then how did they know how to game the New York Times list? This is the part we really don't know, though it seems like it has something to do with a company called Result Source. Result Source, which she couldn't on the record admit to having used, but she did say that she had hired a company, but she wouldn't name them because she had signed an NDA. But there is no other company exactly like Result Source. Result Source has been linked to several other attempts to place books on the New York Times bestseller list. For example, in 2014, it was discovered that Real Marriage by Mark Driscoll made the New York Times bestseller list after paying Result Source more than $200,000 using just the sort of tactics Serum described using. And the secret is that gaming the list isn't a secret at all, at least not in the publishing world. People who work in books know it can be gamed, and there's really very little that can be done to stop it besides looking out for suspicious sales patterns. You know, it seems like the only people who don't know that funny business happens are the very people the list most influences, regular readers looking for books to read. Because both Lila and I have had booksellers tell us, on the record but requesting anonymity, 
that they get suspicious orders all the time and from publishers you have heard of. I'm going to read you this comment I got from this guy. He says, the only reason our store bothers to report its sales to the New York Times each week is because occasionally someone calls and says, hey, do you guys report your sales to the New York Times and then buy 60 bucks? It's not a lot of work. There's a utility in our POS software that compiles an XLS spreadsheet. So once a week, we run that, then go on their website and upload it to their website. But the only reason the store does that is for the possible sales that result from it. I asked if the New York Times paid us, and they laughed and said no. But sometimes this happens, so it's a good investment of time for us. Selling 70 books at a pop, even at a discount, will turn a subpar sales day into a sales we're up today kind of day. And book selling is a barely head above water kind of business. And maybe even more of a problem are people who are gaming the system, but doing so in a more sophisticated way than Sarum did. I also got a quote from someone who wanted to remain anonymous, someone who used to manage a large chain bookstore. Okay, Rebecca, do your best bookstore manager impression. All right, here goes. We used to get in bulk orders, maybe five to 10 orders in one day of 20 to 30 copies of a book from a company, not a publishing house, but always the same company that would only pay in gift cards that they bought from our corporate office at extreme discounts. When I went to our corporate office about it, they told me not to worry that the company was just trying to get books on the bestseller list. So I started talking to other store managers around the country, and sure enough, they were putting through the same orders from the same company. I started to track which books they were buying, and sure enough, they'd be on the bestseller list when the books released. These are books that exhibit none of the flags that Phil Stamper saw and crucially did something that Sarum didn't. They didn't try to fly too high. I asked Phil this question. What if Handbook for Mortals had placed, say, at number six on the list instead of number one? Does it go uninvestigated? I think so. I think it would have raised a lot of eyebrows, but I don't remember exactly what the sales would have been at that time, but it would probably have been a couple thousand at the minimum. But still, I could genuinely see 2,000, 3,000 pre-orders come in for something that I don't know about, especially a couple thousand, like that would have made sense to me. That wouldn't have been a big deal. But then when it's number one, and it's number one by, I think, 12,000 copies, they had 18,000. Angie Thomas sold, you know, 6,000 something in that week. That's unrealistic for anyone. And there's really not too much more that the Times can do to prevent this sort of low-level manipulation, though the case of Handbook for Mortals shows that their filters could probably be a little more sophisticated. After all, this unknown book, which for all we know, no one has actually read, spent 23 hours as number one on the most important list in the industry, before someone at the Times got suspicious and pulled it down. You know, I have to admit that this makes me madder than it maybe should. After all, people game things all the time. That some people take advantage is not exactly breaking news. Rightly or wrongly, readers and writers see the New York Times bestseller list as validation, really even more so than awards. We could do a whole series of episodes about awards. Because ultimately, the list isn't about what a little group of judges thought or what a reviewer wrote. It's supposed to represent what thousands of readers across the country actually did. Buy a book. If you're going to put that much time into, you know, finding an agent, going through submissions, getting 90 rejections, <laughs> like you, you have to, you, you're doing it for a reason. I want it to mean something at the end of the day. I think if my chances were kind of cut because somebody came in and bend the rules for them, then I think that would feel very kind of unfair. And I think why I kind of reacted so suddenly and in the way I did toward the publisher specifically was because I wanted to kind of protect 
whatever was left to protect of the bestseller list. Part of the initial reaction is we suddenly had to defend something that we never had had to defend before. And the book world was like, this is important. And people work really hard to get to the top. If you don't have to work hard to get to the top, if you can con your way to the top of this, has what we've been all trying to accomplish all these years, what does it mean? This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill and special production assistance from Jeremy Desmond. I want to thank Lydia Sigworth, Constance Grady of Vox.com, and Phil Stamper. Phil's debut novel, The Gravity of Us, comes out winter 2020 from Bloomberry Children's Books. You can learn more about it and him at philstamper.com. Maybe he'll make the bestseller list. And we highly recommend Lila Shapiro's interview profile of Lanny Sarum on Vulture.com. We also recommend her recent profile of young adult author Justina Ireland. You can find links to both in the show notes for this episode. Our thanks to Penguin Random House Audio for sponsoring this season of Annotated. Go to tryaudiobooks.com slash bookwrite for great audiobook recommendations. And to celebrate season two, Penguin Random House Audio is giving away my 10 favorite books about books that came out last year. So to enter for a chance to win them, go to bookriot.com slash annotated2. That's the number two. And if you like Annotated and want there to be more, the best, most helpful thing you can do right now is go rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And telling other people to listen to it doesn't hurt either. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.